From the CPRI Knowledge Hub and CPRIHub.org, this is Research Minutes, a deep dive into new and important research in the realm of education. I'm Michelle Goodwin. Today, we're taking a guided expedition away from our Philadelphia studio and striking out into the heart of the desert. Well, a figurative desert. Depending on how we define a desert, about 10% of the American population lives in one of these places. And so that might not sound like a big number, but we're talking about millions of people. We've heard of food deserts, urban areas where fresh, affordable food can be nearly impossible to come by. While a new field of research is studying the same idea in the field of higher education, they're called higher ed deserts, where residents have limited or no access to public, broad access four-year colleges. And like their namesake, higher ed deserts can be a big problem for those stranded. These same communities have the lowest educational attainment levels, and that's not a surprise because these communities just don't have a place nearby to, you know, increase that human capital. Today we welcome Nick Hillman, Associate Professor with the University of Wisconsin-Madison's Department of Educational Leadership and Policy Analysis, and one of a small number of researchers currently studying the impacts of higher ed deserts in America. Professor Hillman sits down with Robert Nathanson, research specialist with the Consortium for Policy Research and Education at the University of Pennsylvania, to discuss his findings and offer some tips to those hoping to understand and address this unique challenge. Thanks for uh, joining us today. Thanks for the invitation. Nick, you've published a number of articles and reports on education deserts, such as Geography of College Opportunity, The Case of Education Deserts, as well as an American Council on Education report, Education Deserts, The Continued Significance of Place in the 21st Century. I'd like to start off by asking, what is an education desert? That's a good question to start with. There is not a definition that is permanent, and there's not a definition that is going to always satisfy everybody's uh, imagination when it comes to the education desert. It's more of a concept, uh, maybe even a proof of concept, that place matters. And so in these, uh, in these papers that I've published, I have to define it somehow, and I use a pretty extreme definition in my mind, and it is a community that either has zero public colleges in it or only one public college in that in that community. And so um, there are two different, I think, uh, sort of challenges right, right off the bat with this definition. The first one is, well, what the heck makes up a community in the first place? Uh, and then the second one is, why public colleges? And so uh, if, I, if I may indulge for a minute yeah. here, the idea of community or the idea of local area could be defined in so many different ways, but at least the way I've been thinking about it, and this is also the way that Raj Chetty and his team have been working on uh, upward mobility in geographic areas, uh, they use these clusters of counties that are called commuting zones. And so we might be more familiar with metropolitan statistical areas or micropolitan statistical areas, but if we only restricted analysis to those types of uh, areas, we'd we limit ourselves from a lot of rural places that aren't captured in those. And so anyhow, these commuting zones include uh, all the counties across the US and they use what is called journey to work data. So it basically takes people's home addresses, their work addresses and sees literally where people are commuting back and forth. And so counties statistically cluster into commuting zones. So there are like 700 and some, 750 or so commuting zones around the country. And so each one of those commuting zones is a local area. And so in a commuting zone, if there are zero public colleges, then they're an education desert. If there is only one public college uh, that's an open access institution, then it's an education desert. I think that's really relevant because a lot of the decision-making process for individuals you know, 
or where are they going to attend school? And often that's a local decision. One question I had was, could you provide an example of an education desert? Yeah, I'll start with one example. I want to um, jump back to the point that you just raised, though, because it really is a fundamental one. You said that uh, educational choices, college choices are very local decisions, and that's absolutely correct. Interestingly, though, when you start to dig into the academic research and even the policy research and kind of listen in on these policy conversations, that silence would be deafening. This would not be an issue that comes up. And I think only in the recent last couple of years, maybe even still uh, today, there's still a lot of room to go. But I think it's almost like a new awareness uh, that, that college choice is an extremely localized decision, but we don't always think about it that way. So I, I think that that fits right into this, and that's why looking at place matters so much uh, in, in college access uh, and college uh, understanding college inequality. But your question, though, is about um, an example. And so I'd love to share one example, and this hits a little bit too close to home, literally too close to home, but, uh, but I noticed that these are stories that can be replicated all across the country. And so in my home uh, town, northern Indiana, Elkhart, Indiana, my own personal family experience was caught up in this whole entire idea of education desert. My parents, my siblings who live up there were all unemployed during the recession, like 25% of Elkhart County. Uh, it was a very, very depressing time for that place. Um, and by an economist um, sort of thinking, and I'm no economist, but an economist might say, well, now you have all these unemployed labor, their opportunity cost to go back to college is extremely low. So they have now time to go and invest in themselves by going back to college. Um, and that sounds great on paper. And in some places around the country, that's exactly what happened. But in Elkhart, Indiana, that did not happen. And the reason I think, uh, one of the re main reasons why it did not happen is because there's not a college nearby. And so uh, I think that that was sort of the aha moment. Like these are these real important um, structural barriers that are sort of hiding in plain sight. Uh, so in Elkhart County, Northern Indiana, there is a technical college, a community college that's sort of in a strip mall. Uh, but if you want to go to a four-year uh, sort of bachelor's degree institution, you're going to drive a half hour away to South Bend. And uh, if you're anything like my family, uh, transportation is not always reliable. Uh, and there are expenses that go along with making that commute daily. So uh, that was that's one example of uh, education desert. However, in my research, I highlight these places all over the country. You could go down to uh, the border of Texas and you could uh, find one community, the uh, Uvalde Eagle Pass uh, commuting zone, and there's one community college and there are about 100,000 people live there. You go three hours north and you find a very similarly sized um, uh, community that has about four public colleges and the same amount of people who live there. Why is it that just a few hours away, you have four colleges uh, in a community that is actually largely white, and then you have uh, three hours south, only one community college in a community that's largely Latino. That was a great example um, of helping to illustrate, I think, which is something that is pervasive across the country where you have some communities in which there are many institutions to choose from and some communities in which they're not. And these are not randomly distributed. Sometimes they break along race and ethnic lines and sometimes they break, as you mentioned, on educational lines. And I, and I wanna get to that back to that point in a moment because you talk about that in detail on your paper. But some of what you said just a few moments ago, I think is, is really informative because uh, to me, your work on education deserts fits firmly within the geography of opportunity literature. And that's something that you mentioned 
has not been focused on a lot in academia and, and, and policy fields. I was wondering if you could explain a little bit more about the geography of opportunity framework and its implications for social mobility. It's a great question, and I would answer this by qualifying that I am not a geographer, but uh, so, so uh, you know, there are geographers, there are other people in social sciences across the board who are really looking at, at um, the role that what we call built environments play in shaping opportunities. So built environment, we can think about it in terms of where are our supermarkets located? And people have looked into this with respect to food deserts. Several years ago, that became a, a, a popular concept and so, so popularized that it's actually now in the farm bill. So legislation has acted upon uh, these structural inequalities that exist in terms of how to get nutritious and healthy, affordable food into communities that simply don't have it nearby. And to assume that somebody can, uh, you know, just, you know, drive to some far off neighborhood to buy healthier choices or healthier food just doesn't quite fit with the way that we know that people behave within their communities. And so geography of opportunity really wrestles with the idea of your built environment, the structural, the infrastructure that are in place, whether it's food, public libraries, public transit, um, your, uh, your availability of, of healthcare clinics. Uh, there are healthcare deserts as well. Uh, we look at our schools as one of these other very important social institutions located in communities where people live and work. And so to blend our infrastructure with our behaviors um, is, is I think really where the field is heading and it's where uh, geographers, especially critical geographers have already gone and it's where I think behavioral economists are really interested in as well. They wanna see uh, why is it that people might make sort of suboptimal decisions, at least theoretically suboptimal decisions and sometimes it's because of proximity, convenience, stress, time, habits, you name it, all these sort of things that are part of not just our individual experiences but also functions of our built environments. I couldn't agree more. So specifically in the context of higher education, the concept of an education desert, the geography of opportunity present an alternative structural framework for thinking about college choice than the traditional individual choice model. So how do the frameworks differ? And what does a spatial orientation to higher education help shed light on that the individual choice approach might overlook? The people doing uh, a lot of the really pioneering college choice research, uh, I mean, there's a, a book in the 80s about college choice, and there were several uh, very lasting and important studies throughout the 90s uh, that extended that work. Um, and then I think uh, probably in and out, it's, it's been updated over the years, but it's this is sort of a, a long tradition in our, in our profession, in our field of, of trying to understand how people make choices. And so I think that the geographic piece, the, the geographic element has always been there. It's not necessarily been the center of attention. So it's kind of acknowledged, given a hat tip, I suppose. And then, it, then we focus more on procedural opportunities. So we focus a lot of attention, research and policy-wise, on how can we get better information in the hands of consumers? How can we help students be more prepared for college by uh, you know, exposing them to schools or, or sort of teaching them about the expectations and the academic expectations of college, how to navigate financial aid, you name it. All these sort of procedural steps have lately become where a lot of the excitement is in terms of academic research and policy research because these are things that you can manipulate. These are things that yeah. you can run an intervention on and run uh, interesting trials on and really find important and useful things that can inform practice. 
Geography is a tougher nut to crack. Uh, I think that it's always been there in, in college choice research and the way that people think about college choice. Um, but it's one of those things where it's like, well, what do we do about it? How can we manipulate geography? Uh, how can we change that? Uh, and I think that there are answers. Um, but I think that's also why we focus more on the process of college opportunity rather than the geography of college opportunity. Um. Yeah, they're both important um, fields of research, and um, and I think you've done a particularly good job shedding some light on the the geography of opportunity. And so this, um, I want to talk about some of the specific findings that you found in your work um, around college opportunity and variation across uh, different education deserts. And so. Um, before we get into some of those details, I was just wondering if you could clarify some of the terms that you use. For instance, selectivity, sector, and proximity. Yeah, great question, great place to start. So selectivity um, assumes that colleges review applicants that come in. So a, a student must apply to the college, the college has to then screen out the students who could get admitted and not admitted. And depending on the college's selectivity, uh, you can peg a number to it. So an institution might get uh, 100 applicants but only accept 50, so they would be, their selectivity level would be 50%, which would be pretty darn selective. Um, most colleges are, are pretty open access or broad access institutions where they admit um, upwards of 80, 90, or even 100% of applicants. So uh, even if we oftentimes have an image of our, in our head of a student uh, you know, applying to a number of colleges and casting wide nets in terms of where they're applying, uh, I think the modal number of applications is like one or two. Most students apply to a pretty narrow set of schools. And so selectivity matters because uh, we often, I know I oftentimes, and I think we as a field don't oftentimes um, think about um, broad access institutions uh, and open access institutions where they actually enroll the lion's share of students. So uh, selectivity matters in this respect because I'm very less interested in highly selective schools. I'm more interested in schools that are open access and broad access because those are the ones that students can walk freely in and out of, at least in terms of, of uh, the application process being a, a hurdle that shouldn't be as large uh, as it is in other places. Another term though you mentioned was um, Sector. Sector refers to uh, sort of a combination of two things. On one hand, you've got uh, public, nonprofit, and private. So that's sort of uh, one way that we like to distinguish among institutions within the higher education marketplace, whether they're state operated, whether they're nonprofit, or whether they're for profit. So those are the three categories. But then within each of those three categories, you might have a community college that serves uh, primarily uh, students who are interested in two-year-long programs, the associate's degrees. But then you also have within the public sector, you know, your major research university like here at UW-Madison, uh, University of Wisconsin-Madison, but you also have regional four-year colleges as well. So within the four-year sector, you've got um, two-year and four-year institutions, same story goes in the nonprofit and the for-profit sector. So all that long-winded answer is to say that it's a way to distinguish different types of institutions within the marketplace of higher education. The last one is proximity. Right, right. And you could think of proximity in a number of ways. Uh, it could be the time that it takes to get from point A to point B. It could be the, the um, miles between point A and point B, or it could simply be, like I described earlier, uh, sort of clusters of, of areas that share 
some common economic features. Um, in my research, I use the latter. I don't measure distance in time or miles. Uh, however, there are other researchers who have been looking at geography and they do just that. Also, when we talk about sector, there are for-profit institutions and there are also online higher education institutions. But for the purposes of some of the research that you've been doing, you won't be talking about those today. That's right. So that was really tricky with respect to geography uh, and place because uh, what I do in my analyses, I exclude colleges that are primarily online. If more than half of the students are online, they're not in my analysis. And that's, I think, important in terms of geography because that kind of goes into the solutions of uh, what do you do about an education desert? There are a couple different concepts that you mentioned in your paper when you're talking about some of your findings. And one is the concept of community ties. Another is about positive spillovers. And the third is around the demand elasticity for application to higher education institutions. And I was wondering if you could discuss each of those as we begin to talk about some of your findings. These positive spillovers is really interesting where there are some studies showing that uh, simply having a college nearby induces people to enroll in college. So it's not just building a college, but also having people who uh, migrate to college towns. But in, in either case, these colleges have positive spillovers where uh, whether it's just that it's more um, visible, whether there's just a more of a, a sort of understanding of how the process, how the college going process works, it's it's kind of a mystery of why uh, this happens. But uh, but the idea is that having a college nearby increases people's chances of going. In terms of distance elasticity, uh, we can think about that uh, in terms of uh, the further away that you are from a college, the less likely you are to enroll. And so it might uh, do me no good to know that a college that's a really good fit for me is several hundred miles away because um, I'm not going to change my behaviors uh, because of that. My choice set are going to be more localized. So there's sort of a, I don't know, sometimes people call it the friction of place, but there's sort of this uh, tipping point where it's just too far away uh, that imposes too high of costs for people. That's how we talk about demand elasticity in terms of uh, distance. The third one was on cultural ties or community ties, and this is one that is harder to pinpoint with a number, but it is incredibly important, and I think the most important in terms of all three of these, and that is that people have familiar, familial commitments to their communities, they have social commitments to their communities, that's where they work, that's where they live, that's where their family and friends live, and so when thinking about college choice, it's not just that a student has information about a college, but it's also you know, where are their friends going, where are their family going, where are their other commitments in their lives keeping them, and so uh, to understand choice, you have to understand all three. So one point I wanted to follow up on was around this idea of distance elasticity. Because you mentioned that it follows a bit of a U-shape in which the quantity or the desire to go and apply to enroll in a school decreases the farther it is from your home. But then eventually it increases again. And so what this to me implies is that there are really kind of two markets when it comes to higher education. They're the students who are the localized students who want to enroll for those different reasons, including the community ties. And then there's a separate segment of the population, a smaller segment of the population, where they are submitting more applications all across the country where the place doesn't matter. And those are typically, but not always, students who might be more mobile because their families have greater resources. And so I wanted to raise that. And before we go into some of your findings, just talk about that a little. 
Yeah, I think that's exactly what uh, what is interesting and important about all of this is that you're right. There are two different markets. There are very different profiles of students. And the concern that I have is that policy conversations oftentimes focus on the latter group, the high flyer students, the very mobile students. And I think the reason policy conversations focus on these students is because the policymakers themselves or the staff members that are advising these policymakers or the advocacy community that sort of surrounds these policymakers uh, maybe have had that as their experience. And so uh, I think that this for me is a way to be more culturally competent, more more open and more uh, representative of students who don't always get their their voices heard in these conversations. And so uh, the the marketplace that's highly localized, Northern Indiana, uh, the, the, the uh, border town I referred to earlier, these communities where people are making choices, uh, they're choosing the college down the street. Uh, I think that we need to not only validate their experience, but also understand it in ways so that our policy prescriptions don't unduly harm those same individuals. There were a number of really interesting findings from your work, suggesting that education deserts are pervasive throughout the country, whether they're in metropolitan areas, suburban areas, micropolitan areas, rural areas. And also there's some variation across racial and ethnic lines, as well as the average education level in a community. And so I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about those points. I'll start with the latter one, the educational attainment level. These education deserts, uh, by the definition I outlined in the very beginning, uh, these same communities have the lowest educational attainment levels. And that's not a surprise because these communities just don't have a place nearby uh, to you know, increase that human capital. So I think that one is both not surprising, but fundamentally important. And so any state that's trying to improve their college attainment rates or college completion rates might want to take a close look at these communities to say, hey, wait a minute, we might actually be suboptimal here. There also are differences in terms of who lives in these places. There are a lot of rural places where where we have a lot of white people live, um, but we also have growing dem demographics all around the country where we have a lot of uh, Latino families moving into rural areas. And so we see both rural areas that are, are primarily white, but also communities that have large and growing Hispanic populations being tagged as education deserts within metropolitan areas or large cities. These are sometimes too big of a, of a lens uh, to really zero in on the choice process. So for example, Lake County, where Chicago, Illinois is, uh, Lake County is a massive county. I think maybe within that county, we could be looking at census tracts, or we could go a little bit more granularly in terms of uh, maybe there are deserts within these metro areas. Uh, so I think that's where research uh, could be going in the future. And I know that uh, one particular study um, that Amalia Dace Garbino in, uh, has written about Rochester, New York, which is, I think, one great example of how these urban areas, even within urban areas, uh, have a lot of segregation uh, and unequal opportunities within, uh, within the confines of a city. Yeah, to follow up on that point, you had mentioned in one of your pieces that the average educational attainment in education deserts was about 19%, but in places you classify as non-deserts, it's 23%. And so that's a 21% difference in the average education level across deserts and non-deserts. And so could you speak to the positive local and regional impact of having a more highly educated workforce might have. So those positive spillover effects. Investment in higher education has consistently been found to be positive on average. So for each additional year of schooling, the, the individual returns is somewhere between 
uh, 5 and 10%. I think people mostly peg it to about 7%. And that's not even including those social spillovers, which could include uh, entrepreneurship, greater involvement in communities, more volunteerism, better health. You could go down the list of all these other um, positive benefits that come from investment in education. And so I think that part of the story here is that if you want good things, you've got to pay for it. Uh, and so I think that education is is incredibly the case uh, where, where this is true. And so when you have a community that maybe is uh, doesn't have the infrastructure to have a lot of college options nearby or the college that's there doesn't have a wide uh, sort of menu of options, uh, it's possible that if you build it, they will come. It's possible that through that investment, um, not only will people maybe gravitate towards the community, but the people who already live there would benefit from having those, op those opportunities available to them. To get back to some of the variation across racial and ethnic lines in proportion of different groups of people living in education deserts. So I was wondering if you could spend a little bit more time talking about that. Depending on how we define a desert, uh, and again, using the, the definition of a place that has no or just one public uh, broad access option nearby, about 10% of uh, the American population lives in one of these places. And so that might not sound like a big number, um, but we're talking about millions of people. And so we've got, I think just by that cursory definition, already a sizable portion of, of folks who have structural inequalities at face value, just based on where they live. Now, if we wanted to play around with the definition or if we wanted to get into details about, well, what are the different kinds of colleges that are even available in people's local markets, uh, we might find that that percentage rises even higher uh, in terms of the kinds of, uh, not just the number of opportunities, but like the kinds of opportunities that are available. And so I think that, again, coming back to the idea of a proof of concept, or at least shining a brighter light on the locality of college choice, I think is really the goal here. And whether or not we get the definition right is, I think, less urgent as, as is the uh, sort of idea that, um, that place matters in all these ways we've been discussing. What future research in this area do you have plans? Or how could further research benefit our evolving understanding of the structural inequalities of higher education, access, equity, and opportunity? One way is to flesh out this definition of an education desert. Um, I think that the idea has some staying power. People are interested in it. It's helped us um, uh, sort of shine a light on the locality of college choice in ways that we just haven't been doing enough of, and so that's exciting. Um, but it's not the only way, it's not the only way we should be thinking about geography. And so um, a colleague at uh, Baruch College, new professor there, Casey Boland, he and I have been working on a typology of local markets. And so we try to squeeze this idea of an education desert as far as we can. And so we uh, have identified uh, communities that um, not only have zero colleges nearby, uh, but maybe there are only one or two options. And, and so that wouldn't fit with the education deserts definition. And so these communities, they have maybe a couple of broad access colleges nearby. Uh, these communities would be a refuge. And so we also might have some communities around the country that have a whole lot of colleges nearby that are also broad access public institutions and not just two or three of them, but several. And these communities could be called oasis if we want to try to expand our, you know, squeeze this, this education deserts um, concept as far as we can. And we even have places around the country that are mirages that uh, have a lot of institutions nearby, but they're off, they're sort of off limits in terms of being too selective or uh, too expensive for students. And so 
uh, sort of thinking about deserts uh, in, in sort of twisting the definition around in some ways that are more inclusive and uh, maybe less deficit oriented because just because there's a desert doesn't necessarily mean that that's a, a bad place to live. Uh, the college that's located there might be doing wonderful things for their communities and we want to be sure to lift that up and understand these deserts more but also understand these other places, mirages, oases and, and, um, and refuges. So I had two final questions for you. One is, how does your work relate to states' historical planning of their higher education systems, and how does it inform states' future higher education decisions? Well, it relates to historical context in fundamental ways. If you look down at the Black Belt of Alabama, the, the, the counties that have been, uh, the plantations that have some of the most extreme um, uh, stories of, of slavery, uh, and you look at the structure of their colleges today, the colleges that are nearby, it maps almost perfectly with the Black Belt in Alabama. So we've got historical um, uh, legacies that aren't just about um, sort of higher education planning, but also uh, state-sanctioned um, uh, racism and inequality. We still see the legacy of that today in many of our communities. It just gets reinforced through our higher education policies. There are some states that have made intentional efforts to have new colleges be built nearby so that uh, people live within a certain commuting distance from their um, from their institutions. And so Ohio seems to be one that has a lot of colleges nearby. Their campuses spread out across the state. And other places, not they haven't quite taken the same kind of planning. Um, so you see variations across states that are both functions of their education systems, but also functions of their broader um, uh, political histories and legacies. What that means for today is that policymakers, especially at the state level, have no excuses for those history, uh, for that history. They uh, have all that information. They know this history exists. They know these inequalities exist. And so they're elected to solve problems. Uh, and so from my vantage point, a state policymaker interested in this stuff would find, uh, find out where they have structural inequalities in their state. If, they, if they're interested in geography, this is one way that they could go, go about pinpointing those inequalities, and then they could find ways to uh, solve that, those problems uh, that are related to those um, inequalities. So for example, they might uh, build the capacity of the institutions that are serving their communities. They might uh, find ways to make those colleges more affordable, more even more accessible. You might find ways to have better linkages between those colleges and maybe other institutions in their commuting zones or uh, their high schools in their community. You name it. It's going to, the context will differ from state to state, but I think that the the relevance today is extremely important and I think even more so politically for rural areas that are losing population and these elected officials representing rural areas uh, might be very interested in finding ways to reinvest. I think that I'll, sometimes we focus on federal policy but there's so much action and so much good work that's being done at the state level that it's it's really interesting to think about how the geography of institutions vary on a state-by-state -state basis. And those solutions would, of course, vary across the states. What are some ways in which institutions might be able to expand opportunities in education deserts? Think of this in two ways. I think of this as sort of a, a neutral force and a proactive force. So I think on the neutral side, uh, and this is where I started thinking about the education deserts topic in general, and it's related to some federal policy um, conversations that were uh, aimed at trying to hold colleges more accountable for their outcomes. And uh, at least at the time, a few years ago, policymakers were thinking about penalizing colleges that had the poorest outcomes. And uh, 
on, on the face value, that makes a lot of sense. Um, but then I started thinking, well, gosh, what if it's the only college in town? What if it's the only college nearby? Now they're not only going to be penalized, but maybe even could shut down. And and is that going to leave people better off? And so sort of the neutral perspective is that uh, maybe colleges that are located in these education deserts could get some sort of a waiver or some sort of exclusion or some sort of an appeal process um, to make sure that uh, that communities weren't left sort of holding the bag there. On the proactive side, though, I think it really comes down to this idea of capacity building. And that term can sometimes be overused and nebulous in higher education, especially recently. Um, but if we think about um, the resources that it takes to uh, not only educate a student, uh, but, but to educate a student in ways that sort of uh, make up for some of the inequalities that they come to the door having with them. So for example, students who are coming from highly segregated or unequal schools, uh, students who are living in poverty or, or from low-income families, um, how can we not only provide them ample resources to educate them uh, well, but also um, lift them up in, in ways that we're doing above and beyond at other places. And so this idea of capacity building might come in the form of greater financial assistance for individuals. It might come in the form of technical assistance for the colleges in these places. It might even come in the form of professional development and trying to help those colleges just make the most of their human resources that they have uh, so that uh, they are firing on all cylinders. Nick, this has been really informative. I really appreciate your time and thank you very much. The pleasure is mine. Thank you for the invitation. Thanks for listening to Research Minutes, presented by CPRI Knowledge Hub. For more episodes or to subscribe to the series, visit us at CPRIHub.org. That's CPREHub.org. To share your thoughts on today's episode or suggest future topics, follow us on Twitter at CPRIHub. We look forward to you joining the conversation.